Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 276. Today is Sunday, the 6th of May, 2018. And if you are interested in Internet of Things, the IoT, then you'll need to listen to this podcast. Will Donovan is founder and CEO of the nonprofit Curtis Leadership Foundation, helping to prepare future leaders and innovators to embody their values, build trust, harness their inspirations, and launch future-proof careers, hence the link. But more importantly, as far as this podcast is concerned, Will's also founder and CEO of Atmos Digital, helping to deliver XR or extra reality services to companies leveraging the IoT. Will is extremely passionate and visionary. In this podcast, we discuss his Atmos XR venture and vision, some fascinating use cases, as well as how companies should be or could be looking at IoT. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss branding and all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host, and you'll find the show notes on my eponymous site, MinterDial.com. Enjoy the show. Will Donovan, welcome to the Minter Dialogue. Um, Great to have met you when I was last in New York, and I got to hear some of the most extraordinary parts of stories. You know, I always say that I've been around the world, but um, I've also got a few more years on you to have done that. You have already uh, conquered four continents uh, and 33 countries, and uh, and you are starting. You a man who doesn't seem to have enough hours in the day for the number of things that you're running. So, Will, in your own words, how do you describe who you are, what you do? Well, I am a traveler. Uh, I think of myself as uh as 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 an expatriate and also as an american and trying to merge those two worlds as an entrepreneur uh as a philanthropist and as a person who is still trying to figure out uh just what kind of mark i can make up in the world you certainly you you're biting off a good amount because uh, you also you see you're running a foundation you're running the the atmos uh, digital which you're gonna which really what we want to be talking about a lot and, and you've also had an extraordinary past, uh, which started being as a journalist and uh, getting, let's say, um, into deep waters in some of the Middle East. And, and you also speak Arabic. Is that not right? That's correct. I do speak Arabic. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the Middle East in countries that, uh, that I lived in, like Jordan and Lebanon and the Emirates, and countries that I spent an awful lot of time in, like like uh, Qatar and Oman and Saudi Arabia and uh, and Bahrain and uh, Kuwait and uh, really that is a chapter of my life that I that I draw upon every day in terms of the values that I learned about living in places like that and living around the types of people that I got to live around and doing the kind of work that I got to do it it, it will always be uh, important to me um, and and coupled with my experience of living in in Germany and living in the Russian-speaking world in two countries, in Kazakhstan and Ukraine, uh, those those experiences are always going to bring to me a global-first point of view. Um, but I'm I'm blessed to say that uh, I you know I, I love the time that I get to spend in the United States as well. And, and and as I said before, there's a tension there between my my experience as an expatriate and my experience as somebody who loves living here now and uh, and and is really making. Uh, our stand uh, in in the United States uh, today. 
So being um, an American based overseas, I'm uh, definitely in the global first kind of camp as well. And my wife and I uh, have often talked about how it would be more useful for us to learn to speak Arabic as a as a bridge uh, in this world. I was wondering what I mean. This is completely unscripted, but what what is it that learning Arabic or being able to speak Arabic helps you to have insights onto what's going on? Is there an angle that speaking it, understanding the culture to the level that you do? Uh, would be useful for everyone else? That's a great question. Um, certainly learning Arabic is difficult because you cannot learn um, the local Arabic dialects typically in places like Europe or the United States. Uh, there is a very significant difference between the Arabic that you learn in school and the Arabic that you learn living in a place like um well, if you spend an awful lot of time with, with Emiratis and you live in Dubai, you're going to learn a very different Arabic than you're going to learn in school. If you spend an awful lot of time like I did living in the Levant, like in Beirut or in Amman, you're going to learn a very different Arabic than you're going to learn in school. And it's going to be different than the Arabic you're going to learn if you're living in Riyadh or in Dubai. My Arabic is very influenced by my time in Amman, Jordan and Beirut, Lebanon. Uh, and when I speak to people who are from Iraq, for example, or Saudi Arabia, or who uh, are from North Africa, they instantaneously know that my, you know, they actually assume because of my accent, because of my uh, vocabulary, and because of the way I structure sentences when I speak Arabic that, um, and, and, and don't get me wrong, it's been a long time since I've gotten to really practice my Arabic. And so uh, I have no idea what the state of it is these days, but it is distinctly influenced by the Levant. Mm. So I mean, that makes it very difficult to learn because you really have to go and live in a place in order to pick up the Arabic because it's so hard to do that in, in class anywhere else. Um, what it does for me, I think, is it makes me very comfortable that I can get around in a place that other people might not feel so comfortable. Um, and and I think that that is practice. You know, if you can feel comfortable in a place like uh, the Middle East, then you can, I think, feel comfortable in many places, even if you don't speak the language. I think that there's a, there's a switch in our minds where we feel that we really check the box and what it means to be comfortable in, in, a, in a chaotic environment, in, a, in an environment that is... Uh, 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 characterized by havoc, which is a philosophy hmm. of mine. If you're comfortable with that, if you can build trust with yourself and with others in an environment of havoc, then I believe that that extends beyond, for me, let's say the Middle East. So when I then spent a lot of time in Central Asia, I was very comfortable and confident, even though I didn't speak Russian, which was the language of the, of the country I was in, um, I felt comfortable there I because see. I had overcome this psychological uh, 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 barrier, let's say, of being comfortable in a place in the Middle East. So Arabic was very helpful in that. I think anytime you live in a place for a long period of time, uh, it's only natural that you ought to learn enough to uh, make yourself useful. Uh, I'm embarrassed to say that living in Germany, I really didn't pick up much German at all in the 18 to 20 months or so that I was living there. Um, but it was just too easy to speak English. Um and I've never been much of a language person. Uh, I, I'm in the business of business, and business is typically done in English in the industries that I'm in. 
Um, but I, I'm proud of the ability to get into an elevator today, like just happened in New York about a week ago, uh, where two people who, uh, two guys who clearly were from somewhere in the, in the Arab Gulf because of what they were wearing, uh, I got in an elevator with them and I struck up a conversation in Arabic and it, and it really, I think, <laughs> It made them laugh. It freaked them out a little bit. But um, I think it was also a transaction that they probably weren't expecting. And uh, I think that, that that keeps things interesting. Yeah, it's one of those ones where maybe you should shut up for the first 15 floors and see what they have to say and thinking that no one else understands them. So listen, um, Will, what, let's talk about, you mentioned Havoc. Uh, so let's start with that. Um, because you, you founded the Curtis Leadership Foundation and yes. and I had the pleasure of chatting with Justin about this, Justin Salako, uh, and and what you're up to there. So this this is a, a program that was uh, d- named after Deborah Eaton Curtis, and and you're doing great things. So let just give us an idea of what you're doing with this Curtis Leadership Foundation. Sure. Uh, my mother was a teacher. She passed away last year. Uh, and we were able to start a foundation in her name and use a little bit of the money that, uh, that we talked with her that we would use uh, to, to build up a, uh, what is now a national mentoring program. My mother was a big believer in curriculum development and creating curriculums that either uh, were primary sourced or were completely built from scratch. She wasn't a... Um, uh, she was a big believer in using other people's textbooks. Uh, my inspiration is to my inspiration was to write a curriculum program that would help mentors teach key leadership and business skills, soft skills. And we collaborated with the National Police Athletic League, which is a 500 chapter uh, affiliate program here in the United States that is very similar to the Boys and Girls Club or the uh, the Y. If you're familiar with those programs. Um, and they touched the lives of 2 million kids every week in the United States. And they have a Department of Justice-funded mentoring program that we wanted to introduce a new curriculum for. And so that's what we did. And at the heart of that is uh, really two equations um, that add up to what we call future-proof, which is how, obviously, you and I met. Indeed. Right? Because of our shared interest in the notion of what does it mean to be future-proof. Um, so the first equation is that values lead to value. And the second equation is that you ought to be a creator, not a consumer. And those two notions, values lead to value and creators, not consumers, uh, uh, are at the heart of everything that we teach in our curriculum. And obviously what we're teaching is we're teaching mentors how to teach these skills. So that's obviously a big trick, right? Because we're not going to go out and work with 2 million kids I had the pleasure of working on this curriculum in Flint, Michigan, and Cleveland, Ohio last year, uh, where we worked with 40 kids and six mentors over five weekends and uh, 60 total hours to get this curriculum set at Police Athletic League chapters. But now the big trick is getting mentors to be able to do it on their own. And the DOJ uh, funds that effort nationally, which is fantastic. Uh, and at the, at the values lead to value equation, what we say is that you have to be able to build trust both with yourself and with others despite havoc, despite chaos. We use havoc as our, as our term instead of chaos because that's an acronym to us. We say that 
that in order to build trust in Havoc, you need to have the following values. H, humility. A, authenticity. V, vision. O, opportunism. And C, compassion. And I'm very influenced by my experience in working globally in collaboration with major government organizations uh, because of the idea that it's an exercise that you're often doing. You know, the, the governments and militaries, when they do training exercises, they really try and simulate the conditions of real life. And I think that the problem with education today in the United States is it doesn't simulate the fundamental principle of what business is like in the real world, which is that it's chaotic. It is not a clean box. And so we don't do a good enough job uh, introducing the notion of chaos and havoc. And, and of course, what that means is that young people and old people have a real hard time building and sustaining trust and building and sustaining their careers. And then I believe that begins with, with these five values and the notion of trust rolled up in those five values. So that's uh, values lead to value. On the creators, not consumer side, the curriculum is full of very tactical considerations uh, pulled from uh, Simon Sinek, pulled from the experience of Apple and design thinking, pulled from the experience of Google and Project Aristotle, uh, pulled from uh, Peter Thiel and Zero to One, and pulled uh, from a gentleman named Dan Rome, who is a big business communication uh, 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 thinker. And so after we get from the values lead to value piece, we emphasize uh, some very tactical considerations of um, how to put yourself in the shoes of your community or your constituency or your customer, uh, understand their frustration, uh, in, in, be inspired by a potential future state, and then uh, drive hard uh, to get to that future state. So that, we, that whole program, everything I just said, we call that Innovation 4.0. And uh, we're partnered, as I said, with the National Police Athletic League, where we're funded to distribute that to all their chapters around the country. And we're piloting right now uh, with Dress for Success, so which is a, a worldwide women's organization focused on um, uh, helping women enter the workforce or re-enter the workforce. Huh, neat. So if anyone wanted to connect with you on this particular project, what's the best way? The best way to learn about what we're doing is to go to innovation4four.org, where you can see about our curriculum, and you can look at our documentary, Future Proof, uh, and that those two things will give you a sense of what we believe and what we're trying to achieve. And um, the, our email address there is info at innovation4.org, spelled F-O-U-R. Great. Well, all right, cool. That's, I mean, as as you know, Will, this and this is you. You you are a a man with many uh, uh, arrows in your in your bow. Um, but the the one that I really wanted to dig in on uh, for for this particular podcast was what you're doing with with XR and uh, Atmos Digital. So the way I understand this is that you're tackling IoT. That would be the easy answer, the Internet of Things. But it's a lot more than that. So let's start with just the ground rules. What are you doing at XR or at Atmos Digital? Sure. So Atmos Digital is a company of amazing thinkers, of which I am probably the least, uh, uh, who are focused on what is called the fourth industrial revolution. And the fourth industrial revolution is a term that is being used uh, by the World Economic Forum, by Davos. Uh, by their, by their, at their big event in Davos, uh, uh, by huge corporations and governments to describe the rise of um, intelligent, 
autonomic operations and businesses and governments and so on. You hear this called smart. You hear this called digital. You hear this called um, uh, autonomic or intelligent. Uh, you, you hear the terms like artificial intelligence thrown around, 3D printing, uh, um, uh, all of these forms of service-based technologies that are now deployed in the cloud. So we have this infinite computing capacity. What Atmos is trying to do is say, how are these things going to be used to affect life in the near future, the medium future, and the far future? Uh, And what we're mostly experts in is those applications, things like sensors and IoT and automation and, 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 and analytics and data in the industrial space. And in the industrial space, the fourth industrial revolution uh, and and the notions of digital operations and digital supply chain and digital manufacturing and distribution, we see this all the time. We see uh, the impact of Amazon on our lives. Uh, We see the impact of Google on our lives. All these things are for better and for worse, right? Uh, We see the impact of Facebook on our lives. Uh, And we see in particular the impact of the global economy from the, the distribution of goods and services, manufacturing, just how things have sprung up over the past 15 years and how they're going to continue to spring up. IoT is going to play a part of that. It plays a big role in the way that Amazon does business. It plays a big role in the way that hospitals do business. It plays a big role in the way that supply chain and manufacturing do business. Sometimes it doesn't always work out. Um, Elon Musk just said, you know, one of the reasons why we're struggling with the Model 3 is we tried to automate too much. Mm. If you follow the history of things like the Washington, D.C. Metro, they said the same thing about their strategy. We tried to automate too much. Human beings are important in the equation. And that's a big question about future proof that we think about in our foundation. What Atmos has decided, what we've declared is that the application of IoT in the home and in the consumer's life pales in comparison to the same applications of IoT uh, in the industrial space. So my big claim is that things uh, such as uh, Philips Hue light bulbs and Google Nests and Amazon Echoes and all this smart home stuff is not at all the interesting application of IoT. Are we talking like 80-20, 90-10, or, is, I mean, we're talking that kind of a, a balance? From a value proposition point of view, you mean? Mm-hmm. I would say it's 99 to 1. Because industry and big companies use IoT to solve problems that are on their balance sheet, which are therefore legitimate problems to solve. Consumers do smart home because it's, they think it's cool or it's nifty or it's, you know, or it's, it's the next thing. They're on the sort of cutting edge. And there's not very much there that goes beyond the gee whiz. It is not solving the kinds of problems it solves for a, a distribution and warehousing company. Uh, it's not so, and, and, and for that reason, it's, it's, I'm going to say it's useless, but it could be much more useful. And so what we decided is we wanted to come up with a new blueprint of use cases that bring the industrial IoT to the consumer in a way that's never been done before, in a way that is not just kind of another box on your front doorstep, i.e. it is not 
industrial in character. It should appear to be artistic and aesthetically pleasing in character, but at its heart is capable of achieving powerful industrial style outcomes. And so we said we need a new name. I'm not satisfied with the name IoT. I want a name that really addresses the bringing together of the physical and the digital into applications that are both delightful and magical in the same sense that we all were first all wowed by our iPhones uh, back in the day. And at the same time, have deep utility, real utility, um, and utility that can do things like reduce carbon footprint and energy use uh, that can uh, get us off of our smartphones and into more social spaces and larger format media formats. That is XR. And if it is all right with you, I'd love to give you some examples of, of, of how this would actually work. So the first thing we do is we really don't concentrate on the home. We concentrate on all the other spaces, shared spaces. So that's hotels, gyms, spas, offices, retail, restaurants, these kinds of spaces. Does that make sense? You know, yeah, the so non-home spaces. So these are consumer-oriented locations from an industrial Correct. perspective, if you will. Correct. But they're commercial in, in that context. And, and I think a lot of young people today are living in that kind of space because a lot of people are renting, and renting is a, is a form of long-term shared space use. Hmm. Um, and people are, are leasing, and people are using um, that notion of, uh, uh, of slicing things up and using them as a slice as opposed to owning them is a, is a hallmark of, uh, of, of this younger generations up to myself at 33. Sharing, so, the sharing economy. The sharing economy, right. IoT doesn't do justice to what is possible when we apply the industrial notions of IoT to that kind of space. I'll give you a perfect example. We're working with one of the largest cotton and, and textile companies in the world. They're, they serve um, uh, uh, hospitality uh, in the United States more than almost anybody else, to my knowledge, more than anybody else. So that you're talking about the sheets and the linens and the towels and, 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 and all these types of things. Um, this is a company that is very into sustainability, very into energy reduction, very much into that from a philanthropic point of view, from a corporate philosophy point of view. That's what they are all about. Uh, their supply chain is, is as green as they can make it. They use a lot of technology in their supply chain to try and have a sustainable and green strategy. What they're interested in is the idea that when you experience their sheets and their towels in a hotel room, that their sheets and their towels can be a part of your green strategy. And so a part of that can be that you have the opportunity when you are uh, experiencing their product in a hotel room to subscribe to an energy profile that they define, that they have researched and they define. So in a sense, it's just like when you pair wine and food, you're in a sense pairing a temperature to the sheets and the towels. So that means if I, if I were to be a, let's say a low green, I'm level one, all I'm interested in is having clean sheets every morning Maybe I don't actually do any of this sort of, you know, green recycling. If I'm a level five, then I, w I want to use the same sheets for two weeks in a row, same towels for two weeks or, you know, that kind of stuff. Is that, is that something, I mean, I'm being a little bit. Yes. Yes. And yes. And the temperature. So 
IoT on one hand is to say, this is the kind of cleaning profile that I want for sure. But I'm talking about the other quote unquote internet connected devices in the room, the light bulbs and the thermostat. Television. The television, right. That the the rules of the engagement of the energy use in the room can be influenced by the brand that is present in the room. Okay, so give us give us an idea of how you're going to make that happen with them. So our our cloud, okay, is uniquely designed to integrate workflows into IoT devices around what we call XR. And so it is very easy for us to know, all right, this customer is in this hotel room and is experiencing these sheets and which opts them into this energy profile. That is that is really the way our technology works. It's a it's a workflow based reservation tool that controls and is affected by sensors and IoT devices. And presumably, so, it's agnostic to all the different types of sensors that are out there. Yes, but I think at the same time we are we are very um, oriented towards industrial practices. So the big things for industry are temperature, lighting and physical access control and managing people's workflow. Those are the big pieces that are typical if you're going to go into an automated warehouse, for example. And we're very influenced by that. So, you know, another thing that we're doing, and this is also typical in industry, is we're, we're able to measure biofeedback. So if you're wearing an Apple Watch, for example, we're able to, uh, and, you, and, you, and you grant us permission to access your heart rate or your motion, we're able to bring that calculation into uh, the kinds of XR content you might experience in the room, which, again, could be temperature. It could be product that gets delivered to you. It could be um, a, a meditation program that runs on the television. We've experimented with all of this. So, and what we're finding – go ahead. Uh, I was just thinking then – in, in, what, I mean, what, what are the challenges with IoT and, and we've had with you know the last – few weeks of Facebook and data and, and the explosion of data and, you know, the uncontrollability of it all, it's, you mentioned permission. So in, in order for IoT to get to the next level, because it's still sort of somewhat obscure and abstract for so many people, is permission going to be one of the things that unblocks it as, as to the usages of it, even in an in industrial-facing consumer space? So... Yeah, let me let me put a couple of qualifiers around that statement that you just made. Mm-hmm. The first is this this idea that there has to be a lot of data to be valuable. I think that Facebook has demonstrated that's not true. Um, it, it, it's one of those things that just can't be true. If you add more data, it will just be more valuable. That just isn't the case. The key to value creation is what people are willing to pay to access the service that you're creating. That's the key to value creation. And I think that in many ways, Facebook and others have stepped outside of the boundary of that statement, that somehow the application of data uh, and the exploitation of data is somehow valuable to the consumer. I don't know that I believe that's true. And I think a lot of people are waking up to the fact that they don't think that's true. Well, it would be so, if, 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 the, if the advertisers or the brands who are using Facebook... Uh, were useful and had utility for the people, right? Correct, correct. And that's really where we're standing, is we're saying, well, 
the power of IoT is to affect something beyond just the mind. All right, Facebook is living in a lot of headspace, politics, cat videos, babies, what I did, what I ate today. These are headspace kinds of considerations, if you follow my meaning. They're, they're, they're in a sense, intellectual or psychological. They, they elicit an, an effect in our minds, and it's happening on this small screen in our hand. IoT is the other way around. It is creating utility in the physical world. The big thing that we talk about all the time is the ability to affect the state of a lock in our network. So if I order something and I want it delivered to my hotel room when I'm not there, I want to be able to grant permission to UPS to drop that in my room. And I want my hotel to be able to also be a part of that permission flow. So that means that I order something, my hotel coughs up the room number, I'm able to then deliver the permission to UPS to come into my room and put it in there when I'm not there and the hotel gets to see that or even approve that. We do that. It's a powerful idea because it means that your hotel room can be more like your home, which I think is very useful to people, especially mm -hmm. if they like to feel at home when they're on the road. And presumably you could do the same and thing for office spaces as well. For office space, exactly. Especially if you think of the space that is going to be used maybe by, you know, an office space is going to be used by three or four different companies or three or four different people on the same day, like a WeWork. All right, so 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 wait. Let, let me let me finish my point here. You don't need a lot of data to do that. That's the truth. You don't need a lot of data. What you need to be able to do is change the state of the lock at the right time on the right permission. And that doesn't take a lot of data. It takes a lot of good workflow. And in IoT land, in the world that we live in, we call that state management. And that's very very different than the kinds of data that is being exploited to serve us personalized advertising on Facebook or YouTube. In a sense, the state change of the thermostat, the state change of the lock, the state change of the television or the lights, that's where the utility is. Mm -hmm. That's where the value gets created. That's what you're paying for. And so when we say, well, what is the difference between Atmos and XR? Anybody can do XR. XR can be a form of virtual reality. XR can be a, few, a form of augmented reality. XR can be anything where you're really combining the digital and the physical worlds. But Atmos's point of view is, how do you use that to create real utility, to create real value, things that people really want to pay for, and where the person who's paying is the consumer, which is different than Facebook, where, where the consumer doesn't pay, the advertiser pays. And therefore, the value proposition is very different to the consumer. And so I, I hope I'm answering your question mm. in the sense that there's those who exploit data and give you something for free so that you cough up data that they exploit to exploit you. And there are those that create utility that you pay for, and the value proposition is obvious up front. We're not the former. Atmos is trying very hard to be the latter. And in that context, you only need the amount of data that you need to run, which is different than needing an infinite amount of data and trying to figure out how to exploit people with that data. All right. In the last uh, couple of minutes here, uh, Will, um, IoT, so Internet of Things, having these... The ability for objects to connect to the network of the internet via sensors. There's a, it seems, a, a school of thought or an avenue of, of value creation, if you will, <laughs> in the amount of money that's being pulled, pushed into it, to have all these objects connected and creating the sensors to do that. What is your viewpoint on building up IoT? I mean, so I understand the industrial component. But in order for the, this connectability to happen, 
it seems we still have to have these sensors being, you know, sewed into sweaters and, and, and objects and, and towels and, and items. Tell us a little bit where we sit on that and the connectability of everything, where the, where the technology is and, and where do you think that's going? Well, I can tell you that the most challenging piece when it comes to IoT is physical access control. That's the, that's the one that's scariest. That's the biggest opportunity. That's the one that everybody needs to focus on. And that's why Amazon released the Amazon key. It's why Google is really big into uh, locks as well. These big companies have realized that getting through your front door is the most interesting of all propositions from an IoT point of view. Mm -hmm. I will stand here right now and say, let's just talk about locks, forget everything else. Because, because if things go wrong, um, that has the biggest potential for catastrophic failure, right? I'll give you the black mirror uh, <laughs> example. Imagine if Google uh, was successful or Amazon was successful in ingratiating it themselves into the lock on the front door of um, a million doors in a country uh, somewhere in, in, in um, Southeast Asia, let's say. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, another country nearby, a much larger con- country, uh, had 10 million or 20 million Google locks on their doors. Uh, so is therefore a much bigger customer, let's say. And of course, it could be any other number of Google services and things that they're a customer. But they're a big market, a larger market than the smaller country. And that bigger country decides to go to war with a smaller country. Uh, they turn around to Google and say, you open the doors on all your locks in this country I'm going to war with, or we're going to shut our market to you. We're going to shut down our market. You will no longer have access to our market. So a form of economic warfare that exploits Google's access to the physical space mm. in that smaller country as they go to war with them. So there's nowhere to hide because they can control the locks. So that's the scariest but it's also because it's also one of the riskiest IoT propositions, physical access control. It's also the one with the highest reward. Once you can grant physical permission to a space, you can grant it to more than just a guest. You can grant it to, like we talked about, the delivery person, as an example. So Atmos today is most concentrated on physical access control in the IoT context especially in offices and especially in hotel rooms and especially in gyms and spas, anywhere but the home, anywhere but the home. And the reason for that is not that we don't think we can tackle the home. It's that the home offers the biggest risk. It's the thing that people are most scared of. The idea that Amazon can control their front door is not a comforting feeling to most people in the United States or Walmart or Google. So we emphasize the retail and commercial spaces, as we talked about hotels and gyms and spas and so on. And we have uh, collaborated with a company that makes a lock that's that's different. It's not permanently connected to the Internet. It requires uh, the use of your phone in a way that does not use wireless technology. Those two things alone, not connected permanently to the Internet, in fact, not connected really in any direct way to the Internet, and not using wireless technology to communicate with your phone, that is a huge deal to us because although it's still using sensors, it dramatically reduces the risk profile of placing this lock on your hotel room door or your office door. So the reason why I'm answering your question this way is when you talk about IoT in the industrial context, you're trying to talk about, um, well, what what is the minimum thing that we need to create value? 
I don't want to have too much data. I want to have as little data as possible. I want to have as little entry points as possible to create the biggest value proposition possible. I don't know what the value proposition is of sewing a sensor into a sweater. I know what the value proposition is of sewing a sensor into a towel in a hotel room because that can be an anti-theft strategy for the hotel. Mm-hmm. That can be a, you know, it can run a program around temperature control. The moment you start using a towel, it means that you're getting out of the shower, change the temperature in the room. It's an interesting idea. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much value it creates, but it's an interesting idea. But that's what you're asking me. I'm talking about locks, physical access control. That's the first thing. The second thing is the television. Television is the original IoT device. That's what Netflix is. Netflix on your TV is IoT. It's a physical cable that is plugged into your TV. I want to talk about gaslighting. Let's talk about gaslighting. This is a term that a lot of people are using today because they feel that this, this the rise of the strongman in politics around the world is leading to propaganda-based media or the rejection of fact-based media to literally alter the framework of reality in the minds of people in their society. Gaslighting. I think you're familiar with the term. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So imagine a world where you have a very distributed level of control over many televisions and many locks, let's say, and also let's say like lights and temperature, but in particular the television. It becomes remarkably easy if you're not careful to allow your network to be used to gaslight the population, which is exactly what just happened with Facebook. It's exactly what just happened with Facebook, right? People lost the sense of what is really true. Other people might say, no, they actually experience for the first time what is really true. Nobody knows the truth. That's part of the problem. Imagine having a network full of internet-connected televisions, literally internet-connected light bulbs. You can literally gaslight people when they don't even realize it. This is a big deal to us. We want to make sure that the, na- that the nature of the use of our network is constantly oriented towards utility and not towards psychological reframing. And anytime you build a network of distributed media and content, you expose yourself to the risk that a bad actor will do something like that. So my answer on the locks is one thing because it's very obvious how that could become a security concern, a physical security concern. And my answer on the other things like light bulbs and thermostats and televisions goes to this central idea, how to keep our business model from enabling gaslighting. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the problem right there is that Facebook, in a sense, failed to be future proof because their business models started to really rely on gaslighting. Well, just, I mean, they just needed it. That's a feature of Facebook. Yeah, that and, you can and advertising. Target. And it seems, Will, that if you look at your foundation and what you're doing with um, Atmos, it's it's somehow it's about building up trust. Because if we don't have that trust, we're not going to hand over the data. Uh, we're not going to be comfortable knowing that our towels being you know you know which I'm rubbing onto my bare body is being read quote unquote by some hotel overseer big brother. And if I, if I'm not comfortable with the usages and, and the real benefits that I'm going to get out of it, then I might run to another hotel. Yes, I think that's the case. I mentioned trust earlier with our foundation. I mentioned how we have an acronym for Havoc, Humility, Authenticity, Vision, Opportunism, and Compassion. The acronym we use for trust, T-R-U-S-T, is that the right 
understanding secures trust. T R U S T. The right understanding secures trust. I like that. And uh, in this case, what we all got from Facebook was the wrong understanding. Not only in terms of how we were gaslit by Facebook, um, but also in terms of what Facebook's value proposition was. We had the wrong understanding. Facebook's value proposition is very strong for advertisers, from promoters, and political ideologies. It is not very strong for the consumer. And in a while ago, it was the other way around. Facebook was an incredible way to stay in touch uh, with our friends and family and, and friends, uh, the, you know, of friends, you know, network connections, not just our immediate uh, uh, friends and family. Um, so the value proposition changed. The business model changed. I think the answer to your question is always going to be, what is your business model? How do you make money? Do you make money in a way that is inevitably insidious or enables insidious behavior? Or do you make money in a way that is inevitably utilitarian, is you inevitably uh, focused on creating better uh, uh, spaces, better societies, better, better cultures? And yes, the answer ought to include who gets to make that decision. One of the things that Atmos did as a very young company is we built an incredible board of directors. Uh, and that's very important to us, uh, that, that, that we have strong governance, that we have a strong ethical foundation. And that our, our values are not just driven by our own internal nonprofit work, but driven by a bunch of other people who have been around the block a few times. So, uh, well, I mean, listen, that's because what time is up as far as our, our chat here is, is concerned. And I was just thinking about another acronym, but it, I haven't got it completely going. But it sounds like twat. Uh, to you know something to talk about how Facebook goes around it. the wrong ass backward, and then we've got to figure out a new T there. All right, so listen, uh, Will, thanks for coming on the show um, and for explaining to us and giving us a good insight on on maybe the best, the, the biggest opportunities in IoT. You certainly turned me on for that, and and of course what you're doing at the foundation, which is sort of. Which the legendariness that I know about you and and how you are here to make an impact on the world. What's the best way for someone to reach out to you, participate, fund any of your activities? What would you like people to do as a go-to out of this? Well, I, I I'm most happy to work with people who want to work with us. Foundation first, uh, 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 you know that is uh, that is a passion of ours affecting the lives of millions of young people and, and, and working as well with uh, Dress for Success and women uh, around the world who take advantage of that amazing program. So info at innovation4.org or innovation, excuse me, or info at curtisleadershipfoundation.org. Either of those will work. Um, as far as Atmos is concerned, um, the best way to get a hold of Atmos is to go to our website, Atmos xr.com a-t-m-o-s-x-r.com uh atmos is a company that is uh, uh now piloting our solution in hotels in a variety of cities around the country around the united states and uh has some pretty amazing commitments to scale out the outcomes of that pilot the moment that they're proven out which should be in a fairly short period of time and so as a company we're going to be looking to hire a lot of people in the near future we're going to be looking to raise a lot more money in the near future and uh, those folks out there who are interested in working for a company that's trying to solve a problem in an interesting way, uh, 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 certainly Atmos ought to be on your list. Mm -hmm. um, myself and my board and our team and our advisors have been thinking about this for uh, a long time. Um, even though our company is fairly new, this was a thinking group for some time. And uh, we are definitely interested in people that want to think about 
uh, how you apply technology in a way that really changes people's lives for the better is artistically interesting and pleasing, uh, changes the nation, the notion of aesthetic, uh, especially when it comes to space and how space is shared and, and, and used in, in society. And, uh, and lastly, for those people who um, really see the integration of nonprofit work and for-profit work, I'd like to think we're a great example, especially as a startup. Of, of, of a group of people that have committed to, to combining nonprofit work and for-profit work where it seems best to apply one or the other. Least we can say, Will, is you're a man on a mission, maybe many missions. So, Will, thanks for coming on the show. It's my pleasure. Thank you for everything you're doing for the Future Proof Mantle. If, you, if I would say, what is the mission? The mission is to happen at the Future Proof. We're on it together. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on MinterDial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please like the handy Facebook button. Or better yet, head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. But first, relax to Josh Sachs's finger paint. Oh, Phil.
how much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transform, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.